Welcome to the Wellsteading Podcast. This is episode 127. It's July 25th, 2015. I'm your host, John Pugliano. I'm also the founder and money manager at investablewealth.com. Well, in today's episode, we're going to focus all of our efforts on talking about current business cycle that we're in. I'm also going to lead into this with a discussion of where we're at with the current markets. They all tie together and they're coming under the theme that I've entitled this episode with, which is the business cycle that didn't bark. Now, if you're a Sherlock Holmes fan, you understand what that means. This is the business cycle that's not cycling. Something's wrong. We call business cycles that for a reason because we expect them to go up and to go down. Well, we're, we're really not seeing that. We've been, we're in an extended bull market right now. This is the third longest bull market that we've been in in history. It's over six years old. And then in particular, with today's current market, we're stuck in a very tight trading range. The market never goes above, uh, much above, say, 21, um, 2130 or so. You know, just the, the not even the mid-2100s on the S&P 500. It, it can't get up that high. But yet, consequently, it never gets down much below 2000. You know, maybe it'll drop down to 1990 or something in that range. But we're really looking at a tight, maybe like less than 150 point trading range all year on the S&P 500. Well, that's not normal when you look at the amount of actual volatility we're seeing in this market. Because although the, the market has been trading in these tight ranges, it's not making any advances up. It's not making any advances down. But at the same time, from day to day or week to week, the market is fluctuating anywhere from, you know, one to five percent. That's a lot of volatility. When you look at the overall performance of the S&P 500 year to date, you know, we're almost into August and yet it's only returned about one percent. So there's been a lot of vacillation back and forth, a lot of peaks and valleys just to be getting a return of one percent. Now, the NASDAQ, it's been performing better than that. I think year-to-date, the NASDAQ is up something like 6 or 7%. As we've talked about just in previous episodes, a lot of that has to do with a very small number of very large tech companies. Companies like Apple, Facebook, Google. That handful of companies are really leading that growth and, and profit-driven performance on the NASDAQ which I think is misleading and is what is giving people probably a little bit too much of overconfidence in the market. So as far as the overall performance in the markets, they all were down this week. Uh, Just as quickly as they shot up last week, they came back down. The NASDAQ, again, it is performing better than the rest. But just last week, it was making all-time highs. And now it's it's back down where it's hovering just above its 50-day moving average. It looks like it's lost a lot of momentum. The S&P 500 is faring even worse. Last week, the S&P um, hit resistance. It, didn't, it wasn't able to go on to make all-time highs. It hit resistance just short of that. It hit it hard. It uh, went on to not only break below its 50-day moving average, but even more importantly, it broke its 100-day moving average. Now, support above this 100-day moving average for the last two years has been something that's been very characteristic of the S&P 500. So whenever I see it drop below its 100-day moving average, I get concerned And when you look in the last, I don't know, month to six weeks, it has actually um, gone up and down, breaking up above and then down below that 100-day moving average five or six times. I mean, this is probably the most volatile period that we've seen in the last three to four years on the S&P 500. It's less than 1% above its 200-day moving average, which again is a very critical level that we'll be watching. Volume has picked up, that the selling is increasing as the price has gone down. Again, that's a negative 
I would expect the S&P 500 this week to hit its 200-day moving average. What I don't know, because I can't read the future, is whether it's going to bounce off that 200-day moving average and go back up or whether it will crash through it. But I do think we're going to see it flirt with it this upcoming week because there's a lot going on in the news. Now, the story over at the Dow Jones Industrial Averages, it's even worse. Year-to-date, the Dow is down about 1.5%. The Dow, the Dow Jones Industrial Average is where we have our big uh, dividend-paying stocks. The 30 largest industrial companies in America uh, make up that index. So it's, it's a, a much narrower, much uh, smaller niche look at the market. That's why generally I like to look at the S&P 500. We've seen for the better part of three months that the, the Dow Jones transportation sector has, has been doing very poorly. And we've said that it would be hard to believe that the Dow Jones industrials could, could keep performing well if the transportation sector is not. There's just a long-term uh, historic correlation between the two. Well, the Dow is having trouble now. The Dow is down below its 200-day moving average. And what's odd about what's going on with the Dow Jones Industrial Average is that it almost seems to be that it's correlating now with the Russell 2000. That's the small cap stocks. Now, these small cap stocks, the Russell 2000, um, they haven't broken below their 200-day moving average yet, but they're just hovering right above it. It looks like they are going to follow the Dow Jones Industrial down below the 200-day moving average. What's unusual here is is that you have both the smallest companies and the largest companies, which appear that they're not able to hold the 200-day moving average, but yet at the same time, you still have the NASDAQ, which is performing fairly well. But, but remember, I do want to stress that performance on the NASDAQ is not because of a broad swath of companies on the NASDAQ. It seems to be limited, in my opinion, to Google, Facebook, um, Apple, those you know handful of companies. So I just want to caution you when you hear how well the NASDAQ may be doing, that it's up 6 or 7% for the year. Remember, the broader market is not doing as well. It's showing signs of, of cracks. And in particular, it's not only the broader market, but it's the biggest of the big and it's the smallest of the smalls that are struggling. It's only the NASDAQ and that handful of companies on the NASDAQ which are really performing well. On top of all that, we've had a collapse in what looked like maybe it might have been a recovery in commodity prices. I won't get into that in this episode. We'll, we'll probably follow up back on that. But in particular, agricultural commodities were really outperforming. Well, they've all fallen apart. They're back down uh, to like their 200-day moving average. Industrial commodities like iron ore, copper, they're all at multi, you know, six to 12-year lows. Uh, gold and silver are underperforming. Although I will say uh, gold peaked up on, on Friday. Um, it's still under $1,100 an ounce, which, is a, which has been a very key level of support. Um, when we see it break below that $1,100 an ounce, that's not very promising. As you know, I'm very heavily invested in the U.S. dollar right now. It has broken down over the last week as well. Um, in my opinion, that has less to do with the overall strength of the dollar you know, versus currencies like the yen and the euro and things like that. It has less to do with that positioning than it does with the decrease that we've seen in interest rates. Interest rates had been going up. That's obviously helpful to the U.S. dollar. But this week when the stock market started to fall apart, what happens is people look, investors look for safe harbors. These big pension funds and, and large institutional investors, whenever they start getting jittery in the stock market, they move their money into something very safe. And the safest thing you can own is U.S. treasuries. 
And so consequently, when they get nervous, the demand for treasuries go up. You think of the laws of supply and demand. Whenever you have increased demand for anything, the price goes up. Well, remember, when we're dealing with bonds and bond funds, the yield is inverse to the price. So as people flock into U.S. treasuries for safety, they drive the price up. That means the yield, the interest rate return that's paid on these treasuries has to go down. Whenever bond prices go down, that affects the value of the U.S. dollar. So the decline that we've seen in the dollar over the last week, I think it's minimal. I think it's related to and correlated the fact that the 10-year treasury is down to 2.27%. 2.27, that's down probably 10 or more basis points from where it had been the week before. So while we've seen maybe a, a half a percent fluctuation in the U.S. in the price of the U.S. dollar, the strength of the value of the U.S. dollar, we've seen maybe like a four or five percent decrease in in the yield on the treasuries. So that's where that's related to. However, having said that, I am watching the the price and the value of the U.S. dollar very closely. I think that long term, it's still in a very good trend and it's positioned well. That you know, a year from now, it will be worth more than it's it's worth today. Um, the question I always ask, though, is what's the value of it going to be next week or next month? Because you know, I don't care about the price next year. I may be dead next year, but I'm hoping that I'm still alive next week. So I don't want to own a, an asset that's short-term depreciating if I can sell it and buy it back at a lower price. So that's what I'm watching with the U.S. dollar. It is above its 100-day moving average. It, in fact, bounced off of that this week. It was going down. Uh, had it gotten below that 100-day moving average, I uh, would have been anticipating possibly selling it and trying to hold on to my profit. For the U.S. dollar, I don't always use the 100-day moving average as a, as a trigger selling point. However, the next big support level for the U.S. dollar, uh, as far as a, a moving average is, would be the 50-day moving average. And that's well below 1% where the price of the U.S. dollar is right now. And so I don't, you know, if I can help it, I really don't want to give up more than 1%. I would rather take my chances, sell it, you know, preserve my small profit. If it does go down to, say, the 50-day, buy it back at that point and then ride it back up. And then, you know what? Oh, well, if I do miss an opportunity there, if it bounces back above the 100, I can either choose to get back into it or I could just pass on it and go on to another opportunity. So that brings you up to date on what's happening with the markets. Now, let's specifically talk about business cycles and, again, why I entitled this episode The Business Cycle That Didn't Bark. See, you see, a business cycle, by the name of it, by the very nature, we call it a a cycle. A cycle meaning that it goes up, it comes down, it fluctuates, it'll go back up, it'll it'll consolidate, it'll fall down. A lot of that uh, can be attributed to intervention by the Federal Reserve. If you're a student of Hayek or Mises or Austrian economics, you have a definite opinion of of business cycles. Uh, I'm not going to go into that in this episode. I just want to talk about the reality of the markets that we're in, the economy that we live in. We know that it goes through business cycles. It goes through periods of boom and bust, feast and famine. What's very unusual about what we're in right now is that that's not happening. We're in a long-term extended bull market, a bull market meaning that you haven't had a 20% correction. Historically, we talk about bull markets and bear markets. Bull markets are when the market keeps going on, it keeps growing, it keeps moving up to new highs, and then all of a sudden, again, that, that's your boom part. It's, you know, you got the manic depressant side of things. It gets real manic, it gets overvalued, and then prices crash, you have a correction, 
The prices on the stock market devaluate more than 20%. When that happens, people panic, they pull out further, and then you have a period of, of decline, and that's called the bear market. Now, bear markets generally last a very short period of time in comparison to bull markets. And that's because our economy is always growing and advancing. And so to grow in advance, you have to have more periods of, of boom, more periods of manic than you have periods of depressant. So generally, we'll have a bull market for three or four years, and then we'll have maybe 18 months or 12 months of a bear market, and then we'll go back to a bull market and back and forth, back and forth. In a nutshell, that's the business cycle. Well, this bull market we're in right now, that's not what's happening. We've been in a bull market since 2009, since March of 2009 to be specific. So we're over six years into it. Now, there's only been two times in history where a bull market has gone this far without a 20% correction. And I say without a 20% correction, you have to keep in mind that not only have we not seen a 20% correction in, in over six years, but we haven't seen more than a 10% correction in almost four years. It'll be um, October or maybe November of this year that we'll hit the four-year mark for not seeing uh, more than a 10% correction because the last time that occurred was in October or November of 2011. That's highly unusual. Markets fluctuate. Again, that's why we call it a business cycle. You're not constantly expecting the market to go on to have new highs without having a break or, or pulling back. So to, to have the market pull down 10, 15% over a period of a year or two, that's what markets do. But we're not seeing that occur in this market. This is the business cycle that's not barking. What I want to point out, and I really want to stress this, this is, this is the key takeaway. I keep harping on the fact that this is the third longest run in history. There's only been two other longer bull markets in the whole history of the world. And the key takeaway of that is, is the major differences between those two business cycles and what we're in today. You see, the, the second longest running one was from 1949 to 1956. World War II ended in 1945. The baby boom uh, generation started being born in 1946. So when I talk about the second largest bull market in, in history occurring from 1949 to 1956, that took place immediately in the post-war era of World War II. And why was that growth unprecedented? It's because it was growth. It's because the United States emerged out of World War II as the dominant economy in the world. In fact, as one of the few world economies and one of the few countries that didn't suffer major devastation because of World War II. Now, we did lose a lot of our, our men, but we didn't, you know, no one was bombing the United States. It wasn't like Germany. It wasn't like Britain. It wasn't like Japan. Our country was left intact, and so we came through that war and into the 1949 period being not only the dominant economy, but that's also when we saw the British Empire falling apart. Their sterling pound was no longer the, the reserve currency. That mantle was passed on to the U.S. dollar, and we started to go on and build empires. So from 1949 to 1956, it makes perfect sense that with our steel mills, you know, pumping out steel, all of our factories just running at full capacity to build new houses for all the, you know, the baby boom generation that's being born, all the infrastructure investments that had to be made, not only in the U.S., but all throughout the world. And all that was occurring with American ingenuity and know-how. And, you know, we were financing and funding and making profits from all that growth. So, yes, there was a huge, unprecedented business cycle 
a large bull market in the stock market that took place from 1949 to 1956. And it, and it made sense because it was derived and, and the foundation of it was on the growth coming out of the devastation from World War II. Now, likewise, let me draw the parallel to the one singular, the number one top bull market in the history of the world. And that occurred in the period from 1987 to 2000. And in my opinion, I'm going to say that the parallel between that and World War II were identical. Now, some of you that do remember your history, you may be scratching your head and saying, well, there was no major world war. There wasn't a World War III that took place during that period to have ended. Well, there wasn't a World War III, but there was the Cold War. The Cold War was something that was very real, and, and that Cold War undisputably ended around 1990 or 1991. The Berlin Wall came down, I think, in the summer of 1990. I happened to be over in Germany at the time. The Soviet Union fell apart in uh, 1991. So from 1987 to 2000, I would argue that that unprecedented growth that took place was very similar to what we saw, that growth that took place coming out of World War II, because this was the end of the Cold War. And for those of you that, that don't remember, a lot of money, a lot of people's time and energy was spent in developing nuclear weapons and, and other types of battling between the East and the West, between the, uh, the Americans and the Soviet Union. You know, half the world was one way, the other half was the other way. There was a great deal of inefficiencies that were tied up in fighting that Cold War. And when those barriers went down, global trade exploded. All of Eastern Europe opened up. Most of Asia opened up. There were a whole lot less hostilities in, in uh, Central and South America, things, little proxy wars that had been going on between the U.S. and the Soviets. That stuff that had taken place all around the world, the things that, you know, basically caused Korea and Vietnam and fighting the Sandinistas and uh, just on and on. The, the things that had taken place from 1946 all the way up into 1990, all those little wars and skirmishes, they had come to an end. And with that brought prosperity. It brought what we call the peace dividend. It opened up the borders between countries. I mean, again, people that are young, you don't remember. When I was in Germany uh, prior to 1990, if you wanted to go to Berlin, you had to get on a certain train that took you there. You had to get off on Checkpoint Charlie. I mean, there were guards on both sides of the, of the border with machine guns and barbed wire, and it just—it was just not a free economy throughout Europe. It wasn't—you didn't have not only not the European Union, but you didn't have countries that could openly trade with, you know, Bulgaria and these different places that that where we have free trade now. That opened up a, a huge not only resource in terms of land, but also in people's time and effort. Engineers that were coming out of school were no longer studying, you know, nuclear ballistics and things and figuring out ways they could blow up the Soviet Union. And that's where the prosperity came from. All those engineers, all that money that had been tied up in the Cold War, now it was free to use the, to, uh, use the networks and the systems that were created to fight that war. Things like global positioning satellites, spy satellites, the ARPANET. All those assets were freed up for the civilian economy, and the civilians made money out of them. And all these smart, bright minds that, that went into those fields and adapted that computer technology and the evolving things that were coming out of it, well, that's where we get the growth of all the technologies that we talk about today. The World Wide Web, the Internet, a global communication, the telecommunication revolution, GPS. We had none of that prior to 1990. And it wasn't because the technology didn't exist. One of the main reasons was that so much of that technology was tied up in, in the defense budget that no one could use it. 
There were GPS satellites in the in the old days. It's just that civilians couldn't use them. Well, now you can. All that's been freed up. And those of you that are younger, they, you may not think that that's a big deal, but that smartphone that you hold in your hand, it not only has more computing power than any of the computers that were available when I was a kid, but it also has access to things that were never available to people. All those spy satellites, all those global positioning satellites, they didn't get up in the sky so that we could figure out how to get to McDonald's on Google Maps. The reason they were initially put up there was so that we could shoot interballistic missiles and, and nuke the Russians. That was where all the initial R&D money and, and things came from. But it was held up and it was not given access to, to the civilian community. Well, once the Cold War ended, once the Soviet Union fell apart in 1991, all that was available. And so I would argue that's why between 1987 and 2000, we had the world's largest bull market. And that was because we had just such a technological revolution going on. We had real growth in the economy. Well, that gets back to where we are today. The business cycle that won't bark. This dog is not barking. And I would contend that the reason we're in this extended six-year-plus business cycle we're in a bull market that is the third longest in history. It isn't driven because we're seeing real growth. And you don't have to take my word for that. Just go look at GDP. The United States GDP this year is going to be about 2.8%. Global GDP is probably going to come in around that same rate. We cannot exceed 3% growth. Well, in 1949 or 1987, do you think we were growing at 2.8%? No, we were growing at 5 6 8%. There was real growth. That's what spurred those business cycles on. That's what made the consequential rise in the stock market. But we're not seeing that right now. So how can we justify being in a six-year-plus bull market if we don't have the growth? And yet we see not only in the United States, but globally we see stock markets at all-time highs. And I ask, what is justifying it? We've gone more than six and a half years without seeing a 20% pullback. It's highly unlikely. It's only happened two other times in history, and both of those were spurred by an economy that had unprecedented growth, growth that could be measured, and growth that occurred primarily because of the freeing up of resources at the end of a war. Today's economy, all we have is the promise of lower interest rates, of more deficit spending by governments, and more Federal Reserve intervention. Now, that's chugged us along for six and a half years. Will it propel us into the seventh and eighth year? I'm very skeptical. And so are the coming weeks and months. I'm continuing to look for opportunities. I'll move my money around when it's appropriate and I need to move to safety. I'll move into cash. If I think I can catch a downward trend, I'll sell things short. When the dust settles, I'll be happy to buy back in and invest for the long term and ride the next bull market that comes along. Because there's always a business cycle, and although this business cycle isn't barking, at some time it will. I plan to be here to report it to you, and I look forward to that day. Well, hey, thanks for joining me today. As always, this is John Pugliano wishing you the very best of returns.